Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Pete Duran, Henry Hoffman, who are our stable stable and neuro expert host is on the line as well with us. Henry, how are you today? I hope I'm not unstable. That'd be pretty scary. Stable or unstable? That's Either one. Let's hope you're a little more stable. We are joined today by Christopher Gaskins, who is, by the way, one of the more highly educated folks we've had in the program. He's a Gamecock. He's a turtle. He's got an undergrad in kinesiology and exercise science and master of science in uh, occupational therapy and a PhD in neuroscience and cognitive science. Well, almost so, PhD. <laughs> almost PhD. Oh, yeah, you're right. This year you finished yep. it up. Boy, how's that going? How's that dissertation going? It's busy. <laughs> it's busy. Currently writing and analyzing as we speak. Good for you. So when we first met Christopher, fascinated by his background, he's a like-minded person. And Henry has a story about Christopher's hometown he wants to start with. Well, first, I want to congratulate you on sporting a, a wonderful beard there. I like Thank that. You. Thank you. Keep it going. Keep it going. <laughs> we'll do. I usually do that in no shave November. So we'll see. My family hates it, but we'll see what happens this <laughs> November. So when we were doing a pre-show talk, Chris, you mentioned you were from Lake City, South Carolina, and you were kind of surprised when you said, hey, I know that town, right? Very it's, surprised. I had to look it up. It's six, about 6,000 people live there. It's in central, for the folks, it's central South Carolina. Definitely rural, right? Yeah. A lot of farms. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I know it so well was last year when my daughter was in seventh grade, they had a tournament in the Lake City, quote unquote, country club. Uh-huh. So we all went down there. It was for her varsity golf. We all went down there or up there and it was raining and I was in a golf cart. And, and if you know some of these municipal courses, it's pretty flat and then you got trees and you, you can kind of cross fairways. So as I'm zipping through the golf cart, because it was raining, I was trying to get everyone their rain jackets as they were getting pretty wet. I'm zipping from across hole number one to hole number, at that point, it's two or three. At the very last minute, I see a gully, like a valley, and it was almost too late. It was actually too late. I had to quickly turn the golf cart, put the brakes on, I was going backwards, and the whole golf cart went back. And as it was going back, I was definitely seeing my life before my eyes. (laughs) And I was thinking about some of my patients who have had brain injuries. I'm thinking, this is it. This is the moment. This is the exact moment. Well, thankfully, God was there for me. And when I crashed, it was kind of like a vertical. I wish I had the picture. It's a vertical position of the golf cart, and I didn't have a head injury, thank God. So last week, I had the pleasure of going back to Lake City uh. for the annual tournament. And of course, everyone's like, don't get the golf cart, because now I'm known <laughs> there. I'm pretty popular. I actually do autographs at the pro shop. So I said, there's no way I am getting a, a darn golf cart. And of course, it was a beautiful day. I had a great time. Sarah tied for second, had a 39. So, so I went from I can't stand Lake City to I absolutely love Lake City. I got a new fan base there. Sarah did well, and it was beautiful. Uh-huh. So driving through Lake City, by the way, is absolutely gorgeous, going from Charleston to Lake City. So if anyone has the opportunity to go to Central South Carolina, that's where you want to be. Yeah, so that's my story. Definitely. Make sure you get some good barbecue down there while you're there. <laughs> They're famous probably for their barbecue, yeah, right? I'll give you some recommendations afterwards. <laughs> 
Well, for, if I get the chance next year, I'll definitely uh, hook you up for that Sounds one. Sounds good. So Christopher, once again, thanks for joining us. I think with your background, we could go a lot of different places, but one of the first things that I'd like to do is help us understand what made you fall in love with the neurosciences and, and your, your affinity towards helping people with stroke. How did that all come about? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, my uh, senior year at University of South Carolina, I started doing an internship at a pretty prominent rehabilitation hospital. And there I was exposed to OT and PT, and there I had some exposure to stroke survivors. Then I moved to Texas and I transferred my job to, you know, that same hospital, but just different location out in Texas. And then there, it wasn't as good of an experience working as a rehabilitation tech, whereas the, unfortunately, the OTs and PTs, they weren't always the most supportive. And a lot of times they would just, quote unquote, give me what they deem to be the hard patients. But these tended to be the individuals with, that had strokes and brain injuries and somehow, some way, I didn't know anything about the OT significantly at that time, but I was able to get them to engage and able to get function out of them. And then from there, I started reading books on stroke and just became really interested in how dynamic uh, the condition can be. And that's really what created my interest. And then from there, I went to you know Howard University where I got my OT degree. Then I went on to work at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, my, my dream job. I miss it often. Mm-hmm. But during my time there, that's what I did. I really helped kind of revitalize the neuro outpatient OT program as well as the stroke program. And I just really, really fell in love with working with those individuals. When you think about your time at Walter Reed, what was it about it that still resonates with you so much? Yeah, great question. So the the vigor and the ter- determination and, and the discipline of the wounded warriors and that ethos carried on to their family members as well. Uh, that opportunity to treat them working with mm. the veterans, but then also my chief, my my supervisors, specifically Colonel St. Laurent. He is definitely an advocate for, for the profession, but more importantly, he's an advocate for the patients. And, you know, mm. whatever he felt needed to be done for the patients, it was done. And so he gave me the freedom to wow. be able to research different products to see what would benefit clients, have various vendors come in and we, you know, try these devices, try different programs. And it just really gave me the freedom to kind of explore where we have. And yeah, from being able to do community outings with my clients, to go to the grocery store and, you know, restaurants and parks to, you know, being able to do the, you know, latest cutting edge robotic technology or even VR, there's just no limit there. So it was a great experience. You know, you're the first person we've had on the program that have used the words ethos and vigor in the same sentence. Yeah. I'm always an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> congratulate her on her thesaurus training for you because that's excellent. And I think you've hit something that at least I learned when I became new to the stroke world and neuroscience. Both those terms apply so importantly, both as a family member or caregiver, as you described, and the patients, right? So I don't know that people realize the level of effort it takes to recover from a stroke or a brain injury versus you know breaking a bone, right? Which is fairly defined, it's a rapid healing process. You can return to normal, but that's not the case. Right. So how do you dig into the patient's side, right? Your side of, of where you can show patience and perseverance with someone who you know it's going to take a very, very long time to recover. What are the first things you do with a patient when they're trying to grasp what's about to happen? Like, what are they going to go through next? How do you set the stage for a patient and what they should expect? And how do you help them understand the level of perseverance, as you mentioned, grit, you know, and vigor? How do you help them understand that? Yeah. I mean, first, I try to 
convey like a positive mood to relax them. So often, you know, smile, make direct eye contact just to kind of create that connection. And then I honestly have a very honest conversation that, you know, yeah, that stroke we have is very challenging and everything that you do matters, whether it's, you know, if you're dealing with left side neglect and if that, you know, two seconds that you can look at me in the eye, if I'm in your left visual mm -hmm. field, how much of a difference that really makes to being able to, instead of you grabbing your arm, hanging off the, off the wheelchair and just slapping it on your lap, you know, actually use that available movement that you have and actually place it there on your own. So I really get them to focus on that, like the little things and how the little things make such a difference. And I mean, usually that helps. That helps a lot. But then also just giving them, you know, stories of success in the past, uh, working with different individuals. Sure. If I can pair them with another stroke survivor, that's often helpful. But then also just recognizing the small improvements. So one thing I like to do, that I've learned over the last couple of years is to take videos or have the caregiver or the client take videos. That way they can see how far they've come. And that tends to be like a great motivator for them and kind of helps them kind of hold that grit and that vigor uh, that we want them to. That's great. You know, Chris, that that's something I always did too. It's amazing how patients forget how much progress they've made. I mean, think of weight loss, right? How many times do they take photos each week to see the progress they're making with weight loss? And with patients, they get so frustrated with their mini setbacks. I don't call them, you know, permanent plateaus. I call them mini setbacks. And they get so frustrated because they think they're not making any more progress. I'm like, look, Bill, let's go back to last September. You couldn't even do this at all. And then they go, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I guess I did make some progress. So you're kind of, A, it's accountability, right? You're their accountability partner. But it's also showing them that we haven't been doing this for nothing. You're clearly making gains. And I'm sure you have stories. Do you have any clear examples of when you did the video? It was like shocking oh, yeah. off for them as a reminder. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. I show the video all the time when I do different community talks, stroke support groups. But yeah, it was this individual that I worked with and he had a, a right CVA. Uh, so a good bit of impulsivity. And, you know, he really rushed his movements and we had him attempt to play checkers and move checkers from point A to point B. And videotaped him. And of course, he was very erratic. He was dropping the checkers before he could even get like a firm grasp. He just wasn't really landing proper placement at all. And then we took a few minutes and actually engaged in action observation and actually had and actually taught him through, you know, how he should be performing the movement. But then most importantly also told him, which I think is not emphasized a lot, but the benefit of uh, controlling the breathing and how that can really have a, an effect on, you know, kind of getting like that parasympathetic system going, helping the body relax so that you can make more, you know, better quality movements. And after we did that for a few minutes, he did it again. And he was able to move the checker from point A to point B. And I just showed him the video. And yeah, he, he was simply amazed. And from there, you know, he always did try to focus on slowing things down, at least thinking things through in his mind before actually doing it. Yeah, and it, it was definitely very beneficial. So Chris, you touched on two things that the audience that are the patients and caregivers should get a little bit more color on action observation and, and mental practice. So for the folks at home, what Chris described that worked really well for his patient was as you try to do a task at home and it's frustrating, you got to take a step back and you have to mentally imagine you doing step by step with that task. So if the in your example, the task is to pick up a checker and move it to another location. That's like 12 steps. So you have to break it down very vividly into mm -hmm. those 12 steps and imagine you doing the shoulder movement, the elbow movement, the wrist movement, the finger movement, grasping and then replacing to a new location. 
And then the action observation is whether you videotape yourself at home doing that task or your caregiver or loved ones doing that task, or you're watching that task on, online like a DIY project for YouTube where you watch someone else doing the task. Those are powerful neuroplastic drivers. And what that does is that primes the brain so you can Im improve and perform better. And that's exactly what Chris's patient went through. So that's, that's awesome. And that's the difference between, in my opinion, a neurotherapist that gets it and just a general therapist that happens to treat a couple stroke patients. So it sounds like your whole caseload is mostly neuro. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you're a neurotherapist that gets it. And so my frustration, and I and I'm, can't wait to hear what your thoughts on this since you're in the weeds with me and Pete, millions of stroke survivors out there, all going to different clinics throughout the country. We'll keep it in the United States for now. And it's a crapshoot who they get, what their background is as a clinician, and what they're going to recommend. From your, let's just stick to your, you know, metro. What is it like for your patients when they come to you and they've been somewhere else? What stories are you hearing? And maybe it's just me and I'm in a dark little world in Charleston, South Carolina. Or are you also hearing, yeah, my last clinic or my last clinician never once told me how to do X, Y, and Z. Now I come to you and I finally have a, an idea. I wish I knew this early on. Is that just me in my dark little world or are you experiencing that as well? Sometimes, but maybe not as much as you think uh, because obviously we have the National Rehabilitation Hospital here in D.C. I know Shady Grove Adventist Hospital has a very strong rehab program. So pleasantly, sometimes they have been taken good care of and they do kind of understand these basic ideas of quality movement and, you know, spasticity. But then, yes, I do come across some, some clients that, they have had more of a journalist approach uh, as far as their, their therapy. And yeah, I mean, a lot of times they would have, you know, developed contractures or, you know, they might not really understand the benefit of a dynamic splint versus like a static splint, you know, which is mainly used for the ortho population. Or oftentimes they've been told that they, they've kind of maxed out, they tapped out and it's the best that they, they can do, which I hear that a lot, all too much. And that's unsettling. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in closer, maybe not, maybe as much as you. Just because of this, you know, unique location of having these great, you know, hospitals here and centers here, but I still do yeah. hear it. But then one thing I'll note with that is that, you know, with stroke, obviously we know there's the, you know, number one cause of like long-term disability. However, you would think that they, you know, you will see plenty of neuro clinics, like private clinics, you know, all over the place. Like if you think about PT, you see plenty of orthopedic clinics all over the place to be able to attend to those people with those needs. But the fact that, you know, stroke you know, such a problem like in the nation and arguably the world costs, you know, the hospital system so much money, it, it causes people so much impairment, you would think there would be more specialists. So although you do have these great institutions that have more decentralized neuro rehab care, you don't see like a lot of independent companies that are able to treat these stroke survivors. Uh, so a lot of times they, they might be able to go to these great facilities, but they're still maybe not quite getting as much therapy as they want. Um, or they eventually go through periods where they're not getting any rehab at all and they're just at home. Christopher, since Walter Reed, you've you've ventured into, I mean, numerous, numerous different paths. In addition to going back to school, you're both teaching, you're also doing research, but you've got two primary initiatives that I want to drill into a bit. The first is Go Therapy, and then we'll talk about NeuroSuite after that. So help us understand what triggered the founding of Go Therapy. How did you find this audience that was being underserved? And you've been doing it for almost six years now. Tell us how fulfilling it's been. 
Yeah, it's been very fulfilling. Well, my co-founder, Robin Baker, uh, also a Howard alum in the OT program, uh, she'd already been doing the work, you know, probably back around 2014, 15, 16, with working with, you know, providing therapy in, you know, more disadvantaged areas, such as the Caribbean or even Western Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically Ghana. Uh, So she'd already been doing the work, and she had this idea of creating a nonprofit that would be able to provide rehabilitation access to specifically the sub-Saharan area in Africa, uh, again, primarily with the focus on Ghana. And she approached me, and I said, sure. <laughs> I didn't really hesitate, because at the same time, ironically, I also had this interest, and I as- actually was trying to establish contacts with some occupational therapists in Ghana okay. that she just by chance knew. So we, we linked up, and we, all, we worked at Wall Street together. We brought on our other colleague, Willie Haynes, who also worked at Wall Street, the three of us. Yeah, and in, in 2017, we kind of surprised our supervisors at Wall Street. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're going, I'm going to Ghana. And then our supervisor's like, oh, okay, you're going to Ghana. Wait, Willie's going too. <laughs> oh, Robert's going too. So, yeah, and all three of us just, yeah, we went to Ghana and uh, we worked for, I think we're there for two weeks. Wow. And we worked at uh, Cape Coast Teaching Hospital in Cape Coast, Ghana. And then also we spent some time creating partnerships and relationships in uh, Accra, which is the capital of Ghana. That was a very amazing experience where we learned a lot and made uh, some great networking and collaborations. And then from there, uh, I think within that next year, we were able to start what we call the Stroke Community Reintegration Program, Mm -hmm. or SCRIP, um, in which this program was focused on being able to pair members of the community in Dodoa, which is in Ghana. And we were able to pair these individuals with not just therapists, but also nursing and doctors, just to be able to provide rehabilitation care, but also education. So we really went in with the idea of, you know, really providing rehab, but we realized it was a much broader need of just basic health management in which, you know, blood pressure even was such a such a huge thing. So I think like within our first two years, I mean, there were several even people that participated in our program that went into their blood pressure you know, so high, we had to immediately send them to the doctor to be able to get care. So we really kind of realized like the bigger purpose. Yeah, that started in 2018. And I was very involved in 2018 and 2019, although my co-founder Robin was actually there, you know, in the community. I was here in the U.S. while providing more remote support by helping develop documentation, help analyze the data. And the program has continued on and it's now, you know, completely sustainable. The goal was always for us not to just be able to physically, you know, serve that community, but develop, I guess, the idea of autonomy where the therapists and healthcare professionals within that community can be able to continue the program on their own. One follow-up on the Go Therapy before you go on to your next venture. What's the OT chapter like in that region? I mean, how many OTs are there in Ghana? Yeah, yeah. And what is that like compared to what you know in America? How different is it? Well, I do know, and we were there in 2017, I believe the first Graduating OT class from the University of Ghana, they had just completed their classwork. I think they're out on their the field work, but they were just kind of entering, you know, the the environment at that time. Yeah. So OT. How many were there was, in the graduating class? Do you remember? Uh, I don't quite remember. It was probably somewhere between between ten and twenty. Probably need to fact check right. that. But yeah, it was it was definitely a beginning beginning group. OT, I guess, in some sense, has been in its infancy there, but definitely has grown over the years. University of Ghana. It's definitely been, you know, a great facilitator of that. Well, we do, before you continue on with your second venture, we do a lot of work at Sabo offering hardship equipment to other countries. So keep us in mind 
on yeah. especially stroke, obviously that's, that's our sweet spot. We can do some care packages to the therapists there that are working with the patients. Absolutely. That'd 100%. be great. That'd be great. By the way, that's first of all, it's a, it's a wonderful cause, and I, th- I think that would almost be a podcast in and of itself, right? As you mentioned, when you got down there, the underlying health conditions and environment create so much of this, and, and I'm sure educating someone after they've had a stroke is very difficult, but trying to help them understand what the leading indicators and the signs are important. So this led to your your new venture, which I don't know many people that launch a business while they're doing all this work and in grad school, but you know, knock yourself out, you're doing it. So, <laughs> you know, Neurosweet, what's what's the main purpose behind kind of your your main business? Who do you serve? Why did you start it? Was there a particular audience that you felt wasn't being addressed that drove you to do this? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, how, you know, we can easily find like an orthopedic clinic or a pediatric clinic. Uh, despite the severity of functional impairment from these neurological diseases, you don't see a lot of specialized privates clinics serving this population. So that's why Neurosuite was created, just to really serve the individuals that have neurological dysfunction, ranging from stroke, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, you name it. And then in the time of COVID, the idea to be a mobile outpatient service, then we want to, you know, avoid the need to have to get up and travel to actual brick and mortar locations that can be physically, mentally taxing, but let's come to your home, your therapeutic environment and and do the work there. Yeah, that's really why it was created. And yeah, we really focus on providing quality neurorehabilitation and education as well as consultation and then hopefully one day research. Have you found similarities between the conditions you just described, MS, Parkinson's, stroke? Are there parts of your training and background that you're able to leverage across all three? And what are the biggest differentiators between those three different conditions? No, I think somewhat, but things things are different. So, for example, somebody living with Parkinson's, you know, a lot of times they, they seem to really benefit from, you know, movements with large amplitude. You know, everything is, is big. It seems to kind of reset, you know, kind of like their, their motor pattern from these very small, very tiny, low amplitude movements. They also seem to really benefit from rhythm or just focusing on like a beat, like okay. that's using like a metronome or, or music or just helping them reestablish a cadence. Whereas like, you know, like a stroke survivor, I mean, you know, the main culprit there might be spasticity. So there's a different like approach there. And you might see some similarities there with the, somebody with a traumatic brain injury, um, with somebody with TBI, you, know, you might have more behavioral challenges or, you know, just things differ. So, I mean, there are some similarities, but yeah, there are a lot of distinct differences and you want to approach those individuals uh, differently. Yeah. Well, certainly, obviously the prognosis for those three situations is very different, right? Some are progressing in the wrong direction. Some are progressing in the right direction and the mental aspects as well. Henry, one last question before, before you jump in. When you are treating these people, Christopher, what's the biggest concern you have when you send a stroke survivor home with their caregiver for the first time, right? When they're ready to leave inpatient, coming to outpatient, and they come to see you, how much time do you spend with the caregiver coordinating therapy at home? Or is that not something you're very involved with? Kind of describe what that's like. Yeah, I'm heavily involved. That's actually, yeah, one of the big focal points. Yeah, that that, that I do is to really immediately be established a communication and relationship with the caregiver because I want them extremely involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've seen where people that tend to have caregivers or supportive family members, they tend to do better yeah. than those that, that don't. So I guess my biggest thing is the establishment of a home activity program, okay. um, which I'm really big on within my company because I'm really focused on establishing not just improvement when I'm there, but what are you doing when I'm gone? Yeah. 
I often say the most important therapy is not when I'm here, but it's when, I, when I'm not here. So how can I change the routine? So these home activity programs, it's often automated. You know, it comes to their patient portal, you know, every day. And they just simply document, you know, they did the work, you know, or not. Or how did they feel? What was the mm-hmm. pain? Then also, as I mentioned earlier, upload a video or picture. Uh, oh. let's, let's see how you're doing. And that way it allows the caregiver and, you know, the patient to be engaged in their continual rehabilitation process, but allows me to continuously monitor the situation. And it kind of, you know, helps the caregiver, you know, kind of come into their role of helping the patient kind of reestablish like a routine. We had Tiffany Top on. She's also a mobile therapist in the Charlotte area. We actually just released that podcast yesterday. You know, it's almost like a concierge service. I mean, what you're describing, you're not going to get that at the local outpatient center where you're going to say, upload me videos. Most clinicians, you know, after work, it's after work, right? It's not going to be upload this, send me that, let me monitor these metrics. So what I'm hearing from Tiffany, what I'm hearing from you, and what I'm hearing from the industry is you have the traditional model, which is you go to the acute hospital, they save your life. You then go to subacute for, you know, two weeks. They stabilize you, and then you're either going to long-term care, home health, or outpatient, and then you're in the system. And then what we're realizing through insurance limitations is your system is short. And then after that, you're on your own. You Google everything. If they're lucky, they find you. And if they do find you, great news. You're going to get a level of care that you that's unmatched to the traditional model. There's just not enough Chris's and Tiffany's, right? <laughs> so describe to the audience, because there are pros and cons. But from your perspective, do you find it beneficial to visit people in their home environment? Do you think that drives better neuroplasticity than them coming to the clinic to do evidence-based practice? Do you think there's a difference? And if you can, if you do think so, if you can kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah, I, I definitely would think so. Yeah, because I feel like we're able to kind of target, you know, that neuroplastic principle, like, of, you know, specificity. You know, like we're at a brick and mortar clinic away from your home. I mean, you know, moving this block from point to point B and moving this cone, that might not really connect with you as much. But sure, now I'm giving you your favorite mug that you like to drink your coffee about every morning and working on bringing that to your mouth or working on, you know, you'd be able to go outside and sit on your porch. You know, now things are like a lot more specific and a lot more meaningful and salient to the person. So, yeah, I would argue that just based off of those principles, things are possibly driving neuroplasticity a little bit more. Now, are you... Yeah, I agree 100%, by the way. I think it's all about salience and it's all about function. And it's hard to replicate that in a clinic. Of course, the clinic's traditional model, and we all had great outcomes in clinics. I'm not saying everyone burn the clinics and and go back home. But I do think there's a little bit of an advantage being in the home environment. Out of curiosity, do you accept patients? Do you bill insurance? Or is this fee-based? Or how does it work for you? A hybrid model. So I accept insurance as well as private pay. Okay. And then typically, how long will you see another impediment to success with these patients is the frequency and intensity. So if if I was lucky enough to be in your neighborhood and and have you as a clinician, and I suffered a stroke, and I'm, let's say, a chronic stroke survivor, meaning greater than, let's say, six, nine months, how often would I see you typically? And how long can that last before insurance says enough's enough? Yeah. Yeah. Preferably two to three times a week. Sometimes I may try to do even three to four times a week. Um, if you usually keep that going for usually like a month and a half. Then at that point, you know, we begin to kind of stretch out these sessions where I might not be coming in two to four times a week, but it might be once every couple of weeks. But then we're shifting the focus to more of the home activity program. So although I'm not coming as much, 
to kind of compensate for that, I want you, you know, to really get down on your P's and Q's and make sure you're doing that activity program consistently that I'm still able to give you kind of like that feedback, even though I'm not physically there throughout the week. Yeah. And my last one regarding your mobile therapy and your experience with that specifically is the motivation factor and the compliance. Accountability is very important. They need to be compliant. You've come up with tools to make them compliant. There's a lot of listeners who are just frustrated. Some of these folks didn't go to the gym before their stroke. So why on earth are they going to start being proactively going to the gym after the stroke, right? Typically, they say you can't change behaviors after the age of 25, 30. So from your experience, how is the compliance problem? How significant is it? And when you do have folks that are pretty darn non-compliant, do you typically lose that battle or can you win them over? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I struggle with a lot as a, a practitioner. But I feel like that's what we need to be trying to do is really change the behavior, the routine to have like long lasting success. Honestly, that's something I struggle with a lot. I don't really have like the, the perfect answer just yet. But I will say for, it does something though. You know, at, when I'm doing my reevaluation, I show them this nice little, you know, pie chart, this nice little bar bar chart here. And I'm like, hey, like, you know, here's your compliance. It's way down here at 10%. Like every time I see this homework, you're doing it less than 10% of the time. But yet, you know, you still have this pain or you're not able to achieve this goal that you wanted. And sometimes like that level of accountability is um, kind of wakes them up. And they, you know, strive to do better. They strive to be like a little bit more accountable. And honestly, sometimes they don't. And, you know, I don't know if there's always the right approach for me, but I fully believe that I will do all I can to help you as a practitioner. But I believe that, yes, you do have to have some accountability and you have to kind of take ownership of, you know, the goals that you want to achieve. So if I do see, you know, a continuing situation where there's not compliance and we try different things, sometimes it may not be the best fit. Yeah, it may not be the best fit. I think when I, I gave the gym analogy, and then I usually think about exercise in general, and sometimes what stroke survivors don't realize with neuroplasticity is, yeah, we talk a lot about the the pillars, the main ones, the the mental practice, the action observation, the task training, the constraint-induced movement therapy, all the ones that people are familiar with. A lot of folks don't realize the importance of just strength training or exercise training or aer- aerobic training. And what that does to the brain, folks listening, there's a fancy acronym BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factors. Neurotrophic factors, yep. And when you increase your intensity in an exercise workout, you increase that. That's a chemical booster to your brain to help preserve them, mature them, and to grow them. And that helps with rewiring. So if you have a hard time being compliant, and there's a lot of good evidence out there on things you need to do, just start with the basics. Get an arm bike. Start exercising. Get a leg bike. And then get that little chart going, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Because I'll tell you what, I'm the most non-compliant, non-strokes survivor. <laughs> you know, my wife mm-hmm, loves going mm-hmm. to the gym and and she sees me doing 20 minutes and taking like 20 breaks, looking at my phone and just laughs. <laughs> she even texts me while in the gym saying, nice break. So I have zero BDNF in my cortex probably. So, <laughs> so we need that chemical boost. I know Pete's probably overloaded being a trainer, yeah. but strokes survivors, start with the basics. Just start exercising. Forget all the fancy neuro rehab recovery, right? Let's start with the basics. That's so true. I have, I have to say, I, I think about a client I, I just was working with, like just finished working with a couple of weeks ago. We started off with a home activity program. I had CIMT in there, extraneous movement therapy, and task, you know, specific therapy, had them doing all kinds of things with this woodworking, that's his hobby. And by the time we were done, I just wanted him to ride a bike. I changed the homework program so much. I said, hey, man, just, I know you like to ride your bike. Just 
go around your cul-de-sac a couple times. That's yeah. what lets you enjoy. That's meaningful to you. That you know will bring you out of your you know your negative mood or depression. Exactly. And also, it's that aerobic activity. So yeah, I agree. Sometimes simplicity is is key. You know, speaking of aerobic activity. And particularly in exercise in general, as you guys are on this topic, as a trainer, I know how important just physical movement is to all the chemicals it releases in your body. You said emotional, physical, all the aspects, particularly for a stroke victim. I think what they don't realize, and, and when we had Guy, one of our, I'll call more infamous survivors and his wife, Jane, <laughs> tremendous caregiver in the program. And this is important. I want to know, and I think you have implemented a bit of a accountability or tracking aspect to your, your therapy, which I haven't heard other people do. Sometimes just doing the work is the win, right? It doesn't have to be measured in progress. Yeah. It's just the reps. So what guys done, he puts up a chart. And if he just checks off the reps every day and then looks at it at the end of a week and then looks up kind of as Henry said, holy cow, I did this for seven days. I can move this an inch farther or pick this up a little higher. Or I've got a little more strength here. Just doing the work is the win. And and sometimes they don't realize that because the progress is so slow. So I think that's where, man, you have a Hershey's kiss, you know, Hershey's kiss at the end of the night, or you take a picture and send it to Christopher, your wonderful neuro OT and say, yeah. I did the work this week. That's just the win. So knowing that, like you said, big movements or cardiovascular movements are challenging for an early stroke survivor, how do you help them ascertain what they're capable of? And then how do you handle that very delicate, knowing that they've got to push themselves a little bit? That's the challenge, right? you got to get yourself a little uncomfortable. How do you coach them through that, Christopher? Mm, yeah. Yeah, a lot of my patients call me a hard charger. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I might push them That's a little okay. bit too hard. But yeah, I often feel that, yeah, they can do more than what they what they think they're capable of. Mm -hmm. But when we push them, you know, that extra you know, five, 10% they say they can do it, then that raises that threshold a little bit higher. Sure. And you just keep on incrementally pushing them a little bit past what they think they're capable of. And they, you know, are able to continually go further and further. Yeah. So I just really kind of utilize my my personality. Like I said, I could be a little bit of a, a hard charge. I think that probably came from working with the Wounded Warriors at Walter Reed. Yeah. But yeah, they, they just kind of, you know, they're able to kind of keep on going and I keep on pushing themselves. When you think about the stroke survivors you've worked with, and this is probably going to be an interesting question considering you worked at Walter Reed, can you share with us the most inspirational survivor you've ever worked with? My probably my first, yeah, probably the first stroke survivor I worked with when I went down to when I went to outpatient, like in at Walter Reed. Mm -hmm. This is before I got my certified stroke rehabilitation specialist cert. So I, was, I don't know, I still was kind of learning and trialing, you know, trialing things, and didn't know a whole lot um, as much as I do now. But yeah, working with this individual, I mean, yeah, she was, yeah, she was barely able to kind of move her, move her limb. You know, some of that spasticity just kind of begun to emerge, but kind of on the lower level of the brunch room stages of uh, motor recovery. But she was a very spiritual, spiritual woman. So obviously there was an immediate connection there, you know, just but she just always had a positive attitude. You know, sometimes she looked at me like I was crazy because I gave her challenging things, but she would still <laughs> always do it and just always kept a good outlook on things. And she progressed over time and to the point, I think I worked with her for probably about a year. But the hallmark of that of that situation is that we became, you know, we literally became like friends. But as she discharged, she always kind of cracked jokes to me about, you know, I claimed I could cook because I'm a Southern boy, but she didn't think I could cook. So we were always kind of, you know, talk about recipes. And she was like, you know, you need to come over here and, you know, you try to make Thanksgiving dinner with my family. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it. So yeah, the two of us, we prepared Thanksgiving dinner for our family. And that was an amazing thing to see her at the year of therapy, being able to engage that arm and that hand 
in so many different ways, you know, to stir that batter and put things in the oven. And then also I was able to, you know, kind of flex my cooking skills on hers also. But yeah, that was, that was probably one of my hallmark. Yeah. Well, you're, you're describing exactly what makes OT special as, or any other health professional that really dives deep. Yeah and immerses themselves in the recovery with their clients. It's unfortunate that there's, like I said earlier, there's not enough Christophers to go around. Pete, the last question I had as we wrap Mm -hmm. up is about the future of stroke rehab. We're talking to a very intelligent licensed practitioner here. So I know we're going to get some good juicy information. Maybe I have ideas. Pete has ideas. We've talked to other guests about their ideas. It's a common question. Where do you envision stroke rehab going? I don't want to say next year, five years, 10 years, maybe what about 20 years? I mean, are we, are we going all digital? Are we, I'm not a huge video chat guy. I still like the one-on-one live, especially with physical impairments. So I know we can't go all in on video and, you know, part of me thinks it's not going to be, if there's gonna be a seismic shift in stroke recovery, it's going to happen in the first six hours of their event medicinally versus what you or myself or another clinician is doing. But let's assume it's not a medicinal panacea. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. What do you think? What's your best hope 10, 15, 20 years from now with stroke recovery? If we were on a podcast and we're sitting in the rocking chair and, and we're in Lake City overlooking the country club, mm-hmm. uh, having your favorite yeah. barbecue, what will stroke rehab be like 20 years from now if we were there? I definitely would imagine more therapy. <laughs> the current model, you know. Insurance allotting 30 days for therapy, you know, year, that's just that's just not it. It's just not enough. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I would envision. I would envision especially, you know, as individuals anywhere from, you know, roughly three months out from their stroke, just be able to engage in that more intense therapy for longer periods of time. And this idea of or this idea that the work is never done. So you might have intense therapy. I don't know, for a month or two at a time. Then you might take a break, then like re-engage. Uh, there's so many clients I've seen that haven't had therapy in years. Mm. Um, so kind of keeping that staggered approach, I think could be very beneficial. Because as we know, like there's no plateau in sight. Like sure, you can have these, as you say, these micro plateaus. But you know, if I come back and check on you six months from now, we might be able to get like a little bit more further. Sure. Also the access to equipment, you know, I would love to see insurance cover the use of uh, TENS or you know, neuromusculoskeletal stimulation unit. I mean, I think a lot of evidence supported that, you know, it's fairly cost-effective, but yeah, to be able to see insurance, we cover that, we'll do a lot and be able to help people. I'm not as optimistic about doing rehab in the context of, you know, the virtual environment or, you know, via like video, just because a lot of times those, I guess it depends on severity of the stroke, but a lot of times those individuals need that contact, that manual contact to properly facilitate or inhibit you know, these different muscle patterns that just haven't really found out how to replace, you know, via like video. So yeah, enclosure, that's, that's why I'd imagine more therapy, um, especially after those first few months of having their stroke, using a staggered approach and then more provision of equipment that's shown to drive neuroplasticity. Well, you know, the best indicator of the future is when you look back to the past. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the last 50 years of stroke rehab and how much has changed. Think about the 70s. Well, you can go back to the 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s. I graduated in the mid-90s. It was heavy Bobath. It was heavy NDT, right? There was no evidence-based practice really for stroke rehab. It was a lot of theory-based principles, PNF, Brunstrom, Bobath, Rude, all those different approaches. We've come a long way, even in the 30 years. And then constraint-induced movement therapy was the first massive breakthrough 
showing that you can rewire your brain thanks to, you know, previous pioneers like Dr. Merzenich showing that the brain soft wired. So yeah, it's going to take a while from a rehab standpoint. I mean, but I got to tell you, the last 10 years, 15 years has been pretty significant when it comes to RCTs showing things that work. We didn't have that in the 80s, 90s. It was all, let's yeah. just do NDT and stretch. Right. You're not going to stretch your way out of recovery. Let's just keep weight bearing right, and then right, goodbye. Right. So I'm staying optimistic. I agree with everything you said. And I think access is key, intensity key, but we also need to objectively formalize protocols. And I think we're getting better at that. Where yeah. these new grads, there's no more wishy-washy stroke rehab, do this, do that, and we'll see what works. It's going to be science. Science is going to drive it with the protocols based on your impairment level. So yeah, I'm 100% behind that. Yeah, we have to, yeah, composure. Yeah, I also feel, yeah, we have to do the, the research. I think we, as a profession, I feel like we need to have more of an intimate kind of connection with, with data and understand how to harness that data to inform decision-making and extend that to actually policy-making. So I also would like to see, you know, the data that we create with this great research and these RCTs, how we can actually translate that, that to policy with what insurance is covering. I think that's, that's key. Yeah. Christopher, thanks so much. And, and I know that, boy, we could talk for days about, you know, what you're learning in your PhD program, what you've learned in, in Go Therapy and the other programs you have in place. But I know when we first met and decided to get you in the program, we need more folks like you out there, right? Just passionate, always learning. And your thoughts about what, what's needed in the future couldn't agree more. So thanks for being on the program. Hopefully that whether you're a therapist or a survivor or a caregiver, you learned a few things and feel free to reach out to Christopher. We'll put his contact information in the show notes and make sure that you look up his facility and, and uh, follow what he's doing because he's, he's going to listen to the future of uh, stroke rehab for sure. So thanks for joining us on the No Plateau podcast and everyone have a great day. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk.